Hello and welcome to Integrating Chinese Medicine, sponsored by the Dow Health. I am Elizabeth Cullen. And I am Georgia Payton. And we are traditional Chinese medicine practitioners and acupuncturists. We are your hosts, providing an educational platform for practical ways to integrate Eastern medicine into your Western lifestyle. Throughout this podcast series, we will be discussing the benefits of getting to know our bodies in a practical sense and how to be an advocate for your own health. Dr. Helen Perrick achieved a first-class honours degree in science at the University of Melbourne, which led to working in the field of medical research. Wishing to have more of a clinical involvement led to Helen studying medicine at the University of Sydney. After completing medicine, Helen undertook specialist training in obstetrics and gynaecology at Westmead Hospital and later at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. This led to her having an interest in infertility and reproductive medicine, and subspecialty training was completed then at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Jenea. During that time, Dr. Perrick completed a master's degree in human reproduction and human genetics. As part of the degree, Dr. Helen completed a research project which investigated the role of MTHFR polymorphism on recurrent miscarriage. Dr. Helen Perrick, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you for having me as well. Great. We'd like to start today. Um, so, Dr. Perrick, what got you interested in reproductive medicine and women's health? Um, I guess to begin with, it was probably more uh, obstetrics and gynaecology. When you finish your general medical training in terms of your res- residencies, you've got to find a path to go. And that was what led me to women's health in the first place. Um, I don't think I had ever heard of reproductive medicine as such, but that's just one of the subspecialties in obstetrics and gynae training. And I think once I had done a term in it, it sort of hooked me in and just continued to follow that path and <laughs> kind of didn't do any of the other stuff anymore, but I've been doing yeah. <laughs> yeah, just fertility work, reproduction ever since. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, fantastic. What a fascinating career. Yeah, no, it's been great. I have to say, I still enjoy it, which is good, which means I won't be retiring anytime soon. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> and before we delve into a few particular questions about women's health that we have, yeah. Dr. Perry, what benefits do you see when a patient is working with an integrated team? So including doctors, Chinese medicine practitioners, oh. naturopaths and nutritionists. Yeah, look, I think it's important that I don't believe that any one person can really fulfill um, that holistic approach and provide all the care that an individual needs, particularly in a fertility journey. Um, I think medicine, sometimes we can get a little bit more compartmentalized and we can probably feel one aspect of what they require in their journey, but they're a whole person that, you know, may have nutritional needs. Chinese medicine can obviously um, provide other um, integrative health um, needs whilst they're on that fertility journey. So I think everyone's needs is going to be different. So that's not to say that everyone needs the same type of practitioner, but I think everyone has to find what parts they may be missing, who can fill in the gaps and hopefully then help them in their journey because it can be so tough and everyone's going to need someone different in their corner to help them along to get them where they need to be. Yeah, great. Yeah. And so, Dr Perrick, we wanted to delve into PCOS and how this diagnosis can impact fertility. So... To start, how is PCOS diagnosed and what is the current criteria for diagnosis? Yeah, Um, so I think 
it's important to remember that PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, and then the criteria that we use is the Rotterdam criteria, which has been around, I think, since 2003. Mm -hmm. So there are three criteria that you have to have two out of three to actually have the diagnosis of PCOS. So irregular periods is one. Polycystic ovaries is a second one, which is the one that can be a little bit more controversial. And the third one is an increase in androgens, whether that's clinically from your blood test profile or, or not clinically, biochemically, should I say, and then clinically, um, you know, the acne or hairiness, uh, hirsutism, um, uh, scalp, uh, hair loss, etc. So you have to have two out of the three, doesn't matter which ones, to then be diagnosed uh, with PCOS. And depending which two out of the three you have, or you could have all three actually, would probably make a difference to the type of phenotype the person may have. So everyone's not going to present the same into the day. Okay. okay. And is it correct um, that say a woman, oh. she her two symptoms are irregular cycles and increased follicles on her ovaries. If her cycle regulates, is then she, her diagnosis not PCOS anymore? It's just polycystic ovaries. Is that correct? Not necessarily. I think this is where it gets really hard to sometimes, I think you've got to probably look at the diagnosis over time as well, because we know that PCOS can never be cured, but can be managed. Hmm. Yeah. So I think just because someone, may, I mean, there are some people that may manage it well enough that their cycles may regulate, which is exactly what we do want. Um, so I think you do have to look at the whole history to really say whether they do or don't. And that's where it can get a little bit tricky. Um, but if they've always had irregular cycles and they've done really so well with their nutrition, um, exercise, that their cycles have become regular, then I don't know that you can say that they don't have PCOS, but they might be managing it really well um, at that point. And they still have to be careful because if they then again things change where the nutrition maybe isn't as good or they don't exercise, they gain a bit of weight. You do find people then do fluctuate. Their periods may then again become irregular. So I, I think, yeah, I think you've got to look at the whole picture throughout the history rather than at that one point. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. Yeah. So as part of the criteria diagnosis, we talk about internal ultrasounds. Um, why did the amount of follicles increase for the diagnosis criteria recently in an internal ultrasound? Um, and what is the current number? Yeah, I think the main reason for that is probably because uh, the quality of the ultrasound is so much better. So I don't know that oh, really the scan. I mean, I think the 10 seems really like these days you can see, because it used to be 10. Mm. Really, I think a lot of people have 10 follicles. I don't think... That's probably why they did change it. And again, it depends on the age of the person. So I think number one, quality of ultrasounds, if it's an internal ultrasound, it's much easier to visualise and count. Um, and also it depends on what age they are when they're diagnosed, which is why you don't use the criteria in an adolescent because pretty much everyone would have polycystic ovaries because we're all born with all the eggs we're going to have. So pretty much anyone's going to have polycystic ovaries if you measure it young enough. So that's why it's not a criteria in the adolescence. Um, and then the follicle numbers will go down with age. So I think it's the quality of the scan number one and um, was probably a bit too lenient at 10 previously. Okay. Then. okay. Yeah. And is there a particular time in the cycle, Helen, that the internal ultrasound should be done? Because as we know, the follicle count can fluctuate throughout the cycle. Yeah. 
Yes and no. I mean, I think ideally we always say it's in the first half of the cycle when the follicles are smaller before you get a dominant follicle. Um, but end of the day, even if someone has a dominant follicle and they've got polycystic ovaries and they've got more than 20, I don't know that it changes the diagnosis, but okay. I guess ideally it's in that first half of the cycle before a dominant follicle. Well, these people probably don't have a dominant follicle. That's the other thing you've got to remember. We sort of talk about dominant follicles, but if you've got irregular cycles, they're probably, we can talk about what type of the cycle they're in, but if you don't have a regular cycle, these people go waiting for it. It doesn't matter. You just go get a scan because they're always in the same type of, you know, in that early phase often because they're not having regular cycles. So it doesn't matter in that respect as well. Yeah. So I hope that doesn't sound confusing. <laughs> well, it makes complete sense. Yeah. That's <laughs> clear. Thank you. And so, Helen, is PCOS often misdiagnosed? I think it's I think it's twofold. I think in some ways it's probably underdiagnosed. So you might have people that, I mean, and I think that's what they do say. It's definitely some people go through life and not be ever diagnosed. So there's that aspect of it. But then there is a second aspect. The misdiagnosis, I think, is more to do with just the term polycystic ovaries being thrown around. Um and people not really understanding the difference between just someone having maybe polycystic ovaries. As we talked about the criteria for PCOS, you have to have two out of the three. So I think people, someone, you know, you might have a scan and someone says, oh, you've got polycystic ovaries, and then someone assumes they've got PCOS. So I think that's where a lot of the misdiagnosis can happen, um, and then people just interpret that as I've got all these other issues. Um, so I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. Um that happens. Um, obviously, underdiagnosis is not good because people might not be getting the right advice. Misdiagnosis can get people to get concerned about things they don't need to be concerned about at the same time. So they're probably both a little bit of an issue. Mm. Yeah, okay, yeah. Would you mind differentiating the difference between PCO and PCOS? Yeah, so PCO is just uh, polycystic ovary. So that's just a definition of more than 20 follicles on an ovary. Um, and that can be just a normal variant. If you've got a really good ovarian reserve, you might have an ovary that has lots and lots of follicles, but you have regular cycles, you don't have any increased androgens, so you don't fit the criteria for PCOS because you need two out of the three. So yeah. it's just part of you. You've got a real, I know you just said to the patient, well, that's really great. You've got a good ovarian reserve. There's lots of follicles there. You don't fit the criteria for PCOS. There's actually nothing negative in having polycystic ovaries. And I often get consults for, for that as well. People come in panicked. They've got mm. something wrong with their ovaries, you know. And that's the other confusion. I think they're cysts. They're not cysts. They're only follicles. Um, and there's nothing wrong with them. They've got regular cycles. And if you're 36 or 7 and you've got lots of follicles, I'd say good on you. That's probably a good sign. It doesn't have anything to do with your fertility, but at least in terms of where your ovarian reserve is at, you're at a really good position. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. Okay, and so this is an interesting one, Dr. Perry. Um, after stopping the pill, how long should someone wait to investigate PCOS? Yeah, look, I think it comes down again to the patient's history. Um, and I think people, like I always start with the question, how old were you when menarche occurred? What were your periods like after the periods started? And what were they like up until the point where you started the pill? And then you'll often get this history of, oh, my periods are always terrible. They're either too frequent or really irregular. And that's the reason I went on the pill. Well, what normally will happen then is those patients will always, they'll go off the pill. They're probably, the pill just 
is kind of masking what's happening in the background. And it's not a bad thing. It's just that your cycle will probably go back to exactly what it was like in the past. So if someone has that sort of history, um, I would probably get them investigated fairly quickly um, and just say, well, look, there's nothing wrong. It's just going back to what your cycle was like in the past. So if you don't have a period that returns within two or three months, mm. I would definitely um, investigate. If someone had normal cycles in the past as well, I guess two or three months is a good average to sort of um, look into why maybe the periods have changed as well. Okay. Um, overall, yeah. And most people, to be honest, if they've had regular periods in the past, nothing will change. They'll, they'll just be having regular periods as soon as they stop the pill. Mm. That will be the majority of the people. And then the other... A lot of people will be, the great number will be ones that, you know, from the history, you know that what's happened is exactly what you expect to happen because of their past history. Um, and then there'll be obviously a small percentage that maybe there is some change in their periods from when they went on the pill as well. Yeah. How often do you see, Dr. Perry, uh, say, for example, a patient comes in and she has post-pill amenorrhea and then is diagnosed with PCOS, but some it is some form of a misdiagnosis. She gets another internal ultrasound, say, for example, six months later and the appearance of her ovaries are starting to look healthier? I, I don't know that you'd, I wouldn't go so much by the ultrasound. I think the ultrasound's not going to change much because remember when you're on the pill, yeah. it's all that's doing is suppressing ovulation. Mm. Um, so I don't really, so every month, whether you're on the pill or not, because we're born with all the eggs we're going to have, you've always got cohorts of follicles coming through. So all the pill is suppressing is the actual part of getting a dominant follicle and ovulating. Mm. Whether you're on the pill or not, I don't expect that the number of follicles that are coming through to really change. That I would expect yeah. to be the same. So to me, be more what their blood tests are doing. Okay. Because you're on the pill, the reason you're not going to be ovulating is because your FSH and LH hormones are what are being suppressed by being on the pill. Um, so that's what you want the pill to get out of your system so your hormones don't look suppressed because of the pills. So you want to know what are your hormones doing when the pills out of your system. That's what I think will more be will be more helpful to determine why your periods haven't returned when you start okay. the rather than the actual ultrasound. So yeah. I don't necessarily be giving me the answer. Yeah. So, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you see that kind of picture with patients, say, for example, FSH, LH, amenorrhea, it's low, or say yeah. elevated, and then they come back six months later, they've been doing the work that looked like suspected PCOS back then, but now you're finding that everything's balanced out post-pill? I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. It's a trick. I don't know if it's kind of a balance. I think it's more that... The FSH and LH is low because the pills are just suppressing yeah. it. That's that's where it's at. Um, once you're not suppressed, it's just a matter of how your hypothalamus pituitary axis is working. Um, and I think, yeah, it depends on what the underlying issue is. Um, I think if there's no underlying issue, I expect that that'll all work normally and you'll ovulate every month and get a period. Yeah. But if that axis is not working properly, it's more that's where the bloods may help. Well, okay, what's the level of the FSHLH hormone? Is it low? Is it, you know, maybe a hypothalamic concern where you're not producing enough FSH and LH, which is not PCOS. That's another cause of why you might not be getting regular periods. If the hormones look normal or maybe the LH is a little bit high, it may point to a PCOS. So I don't know that that will necessarily regulate Um 
if you feel that there's a problem there, then, then yes, they may need treatment to try and help the cause. Um, um, and yeah, if it's PCOS that you think that they have, then the nutrition, um, if there's a weight concern, exercise, all of those, those things may help manage their condition, which will then help that hormone profile improve. Um, the same as if someone has a really low FSH and LH and maybe it's hypothalamic amenorrhea and maybe they're actually underweight, they're exercising too much, that's sometimes also a very hard thing to pull back on and manage and that can take sometimes over a year to improve. So it's not something that you'll notice an improvement very quickly um, before those hormones may adjust with those lifestyle changes you need to make. Mm. Yeah. Takes time. So that's it. Definitely takes a long time. So I don't know that we'll see often results in two or three months with no. either of these um, conditions. It's going to take a lot longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. And Helen, coming back to the presentation of PCOS, mm. um, so why is a long follicular phase an issue for female hormones? Yeah, I, I, it's not, again, the long follicular phase that's the issue um, because if you like if you're on the pill, theoretically, you've got a very long follicular phase and that's not an issue because in that sense, your hormones are actually balanced because you've got estrogen and progesterone in the pill and that's not an issue whatsoever. The issue with things like PCOS is that your lack of progesterone and unopposed estrogen is what the problem is um, and that's why you need to be ovulating to get the progesterone in your system to make sure that um, the endometrium doesn't have changes occurring over time so that it can end up with endometrial hyperplasia, which can be then a precursor to endometrial cancer. So it's the ovulation, the progesterone, that's the issue, not the follicular phase as such. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that's why we always say to them, they do need periods, not because you need a period, it's because you need the withdrawal bleed which is an indication that you're ovulating, you've got progesterone on board. Yeah. Yeah. And how many periods would you say a woman needs a year to decrease the likelihood of um, any yeah. issues occurring? I think the recommendation is probably if you at least um, have a withdrawal bleed and some form of progesterone every three months. Okay. That should be sufficient at minimum to, um, you know, stop the increased risk of things like endometrial hyperplasia. So how people want to achieve that, again, it really depends on what the patient wants. I mean, people just always sometimes say, oh, the pill's the easy solution. Well, it kind of is, but if you don't want to be on the pill, it's not the only solution. So that would be, if you need contraception, I think the pill's obviously still the best option. Um, otherwise, if someone doesn't want to be on the pill, you can just introduce progesterone only, you know, for like 10 days, um, in a, 10 days in a month, every three months to bring on that withdrawal lead and that will also um, be sufficient as well. So it just depends on what the patient is after. Um, but I would say either of those two I would recommend if they get less than um, four periods a year, definitely. Okay. Just yeah. touching on what you just said, Dr. Perrick, about do you think the oral contraceptive pill is still the best form of contraception over, say, for example, the IUD, say, for example, the Marina? Um, I think it's just the same as it comes down to what the patient Preferences. I think they're all good forms of contraception. Um, obviously, the IUDs are probably the most reliable. So yeah. if you're looking at what's doesn't matter what your condition is, that's going to be the lowest failure rate. Um, mm -hmm. 
So if you're looking at the lowest value rate, you don't like taking tablets, yes, I think the IUD is wonderful. Mm. Uh, but if someone doesn't want to have an IUD, then absolutely the pill um, okay. is a good option as well. So I think any of them are a good option for contraception. Mm. And they'll all be perfect for someone that doesn't have irregular, that has, you know, really irregular periods because you've got progesterone on board with all of those. So that's mm. going to solve that problem as well. Yeah. And from there, you've touched on this, but why is it important that women ovulate? Well, yeah, it, it's just the the lack of, um, it's the unopposed estrogen. Yeah. So that's the reason we want someone to have ovulation, you know, at least every sort of two or three months um, to minimise the changes. And I think people worry, I mean, it's more over years. Um, so it's not like these things happen overnight, but, you know, um, you know, from endometrial hyperplasia even to cancer, you know, you're looking at years and years and years. But I think people forget if this started from menarche and you just didn't worry about it, then yes, maybe in your 20s, that could be a problem. So um, I think it's still important to recognise that if you really don't have periods, it's like periods are a sign of, um, of health end of the day. And um, if it's not happening, you do need to know why and what are some of the risks to you. And with PCOS, it's the usually unopposed estrogen mm. it's your risk of endometrial hyperplasia. And it's really sad sometimes because you do see someone that they've never managed it and then they come wanting pregnancy and mm. that's what it's discovered and you've got to treat that then first before you can even embark on their fertility journey. So I think it's an important um, thing to educate the women about that have irregular periods. Um, they do um, have some form of withdrawal bleed, however we instigate that depending on their needs. Mm. Yeah. And touching base with fertility treatment and PCOS, mm. So, Helen, for a woman accurately diagnosed with PCOS, what would a treatment plan look like? Look, I think it's going to, again, vary when they're diagnosed, what are their symptoms, what's bothering the person. Like, I mean, sometimes people just get scared about their fertility when they're 20 and they don't care about their fertility at all. But, you know, it's the hirsutism and all the hairiness that's really affecting their self-esteem or their weight may be an issue. So that's why it's definitely a multidisciplinary team that you need to work with um, when you're di diagnosed with PCOS. You really need to know uh, what part of the PCOS is affecting the patient at that time that really needs to be addressed. And I think people forget that emotional health with PCOS is really important. Mm. Apart from the factors that we talked about diagnosis, um, we know that People with PCOS definitely have higher rates of anxiety and depression, um, even eating disorders because of that weight fluctuation. So there's a lot that has to be addressed to work out what's the right treatment plan for that individual. Um, and it's really a lifetime plan as well that probably needs to be reviewed because as they grow, depending on when they're diagnosed, um, the issues might change and their needs may change as well. Um, and I think they need to be aware that it is a lifelong diagnosis it's never going to be cured it's going to be managed and it can be managed well um, but if you don't manage it that's where often weight can become an issue um, other health concerns such as increased risk of diabetes cardiovascular disease may be an issue later in life so it's a lifelong management issue from a nutritional weight perspective um, so that's why it's a bit hard to say what the treatment plan will be except it's a lifelong treatment plan addressing the needs of the patient at that time and changing it with time as they get older, depending on the time of the diagnosis. Okay, yeah. Helen, we often find in clinic when patients have recently been diagnosed with PCOS that one of their main concerns and worries is their fertility in the future. Um, yeah. 
with PCOS, does it necessarily mean that there will be an issue with fertility if, if you know, if they're able to manage a regular cycle? Yeah, no, not really. Yeah, I think I think people just get really scared. That, I mean, I think, number one, people think they'll never have children, and that's terrible because I think from a, as a fertility doctor, probably one of the easiest ones, not easiest, but one of the easy things to treat is, Hmm. In terms of fertility, she is PCOS because it's an ovulation problem usually. Um, so I understand that they're worried, but they need to be reassured that there'll be a group for number one. If you've got regular cycles and still have PCOS, then it's unlikely that you'll have an issue. I mean, you may still have other fertility issues because fertility can be I mean, maybe male factor, then maybe blocked tube. So obviously, it's a whole picture when it comes to fertility. But if you have regular cycles, it would indicate you're ovulating, at least that part of it's working. So that should be, you know, minimal concern. Um, if you have irregular cycles, look, I've had patients that even with irregular cycles, it's kind of a bit of a lottery, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Ovulate once a blue moon, you know, and if you haven't timed it for whatever reason um, at the right time, I mean, you see that happen. They went, oh, well, it just happens, That's which is why contraception is important if you don't want to get pregnant mm. at the same time because if you do time it correctly and you have ovulated and there's no other fertility concerns, you will still achieve a pregnancy. Mm. Um, but it can get tricky because timing is like random, like we don't know. If, you, if your cycle's every 60 to 90 days, who knows when you're going to ovulate? And if you think about your chance of conception per month being at best 20 to 25% per month, if you have two cycles a year, you might have had two goes at it and did you time it? Well, that makes it pretty tricky. So I think um, that's why you would need to see a fertility specialist and be reassured that, look, what we need to do is treat your anovulation and with PCOS, usually if everything else with all their other fertility investigations are normal, what you want to do is ovulation induction with things such as letrozole or clomid. And my first line these days is something like letrozole, which is a tablet. So you can reassure them it doesn't mean that you can't get pregnant. And number two, it doesn't mean that you're going to need to go straight to IVF. Ovulation induction with things like letrozole is first line treatment for PCOS. Yeah. So, um, Helen, we wanted to talk about supplements. So why is it so important that patients tell you all the supplements that they are taking prior to and throughout their fertility treatment? Yeah, I, I guess more um, just that we know what everyone's on, that it's not going to somehow interfere with the medications we're giving them. Um, and, yeah, I think that would be the main reason, really, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know because I think some a lot of supplements are obviously beneficial. Others sometimes may not be taken at the right time when you're having fertility treatment. Um, so it depends. And, yeah, and I think you guys would do the right thing anyway, so I'm not worried. So I think if you're seeing someone that's dealing with the fertility issue, so but what you might ask someone to take will be different during a preconception phase to a fertility phase and a lot of people source things online these days as well that might not be using things at the appropriate time so I guess it's good to just have someone run by everything they're on um, just to make sure that there are any concerns with the timing of it or is it necessary during the fertility treatment or is it contraindicated even sometimes yeah and we I know we always recommend to our patients complete transparency with their specialists mm -hmm. so that you guys know what they're taking and um, vice versa as well yeah yeah so, yeah. yeah yeah it's good so everyone's working together and yeah rather than 
yeah, sometimes people just do it on their own these days as well, which I think is probably a little bit more worrying. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So, Helen, we wanted to touch base about the research that you have done with recurrent miscarriage. Um, if we can start with how is recurrent miscarriage defined? Yeah, I think most organisations would now define it as two or more pregnancy losses. Um, it used to be three, but I think now most of the organisations like ASRM and uh, even I think the English Society of History defined it as greater than two losses. Mm. Yeah. And Helen, what are the most common causes of recurrent miscarriage that you see? Yeah, look, I, I still, I think because we all tend to start our families a little bit later now, and we know that age is overall the most important factor in first achieving a pregnancy, and also then um, the highest risk in, in, in having a miscarriage. Um, as we get older, our egg quality is not as good. Um, chromosomal abnormalities increase with age. So I would say that would definitely be the main reason um, that I would see patients that are having recurrent miscarriages. Um, it's not going to be uncommon sometimes if you're in your late 30s to have had one or two miscarriages just randomly by chance um, because there is a chromosomal problem, unfortunately. It's still very difficult, but that's probably the main reason I would say I see patients as, you know, that would be the main cause of their miscarriages, definitely. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think that's still they've got a good chance of an ongoing pregnancy even after two. Mm. How about the role of sperm quality, Helen? Look, it probably plays a small part. Um, I think it's, it's still absolutely important. Um, egg quality is still probably overwhelmingly the main factor, but definitely, particularly with men that are a lot older, I think the studies suggest that, you know, when in their, I guess, 50 and over, and uh, if there's higher levels of DNA damage, there may be... Um, a contributing factor to miscarriages as well. And often the men that are that much older, women are often older as well. So I think the two together is, is can be quite tricky. Um, so I think definitely can be a factor, yeah. Okay. Mm. And from the research that you did, Helen, with um, the MTHFR and polymorphism, would you mind sharing a little bit more about that? Yeah, look, I think with, with that research, um, we didn't actually find the incidence was higher in different groups. So in the end of all that, I don't think I felt that um, it was a major contributing part, if at all, to miscarriages. Um, okay. So Professor Jansen was really interested in that. Um, and what the study was looking at was um, people that had had miscarriages, two or more, an IVF population group, because it was thought maybe they also had a higher rate of polymorphism of the MTHFR. Um, and a healthy population that were already having their second child. The okay. incidence rate was exactly the same between all the groups. And in fact, some of the ones that we collected the samples from, because it was done at RPA, that had had no miscarriages and were already having their second child. Some of them even had um, you know, two, three, even one had four mutations of the, uh, of the, of the polymorphism. So, and then I think if you look at the studies, I think we have supplement well with folic acid, which is probably why it's not an issue. I'm not saying maybe it wouldn't be in places. And the studies that did find a correlation was pre-folic acid supplementations in some of the European countries like France from, you know, decades ago. Um, but because some of our foods fortified with folic acid, most people do take folic acid. I think that's why it's not really a concern because this folic acid cycle with the extra folic acid we are taking works well enough, which is why we don't tend to see the elevated homocysteine 
fasting levels, and I think that's why we didn't see an increase in miscarriage rates um, with the MTHFR. Um, did, they, um, did they delve into, like, different supplementation, say, for example, instead of using folic acid, using folate or not? No. No, okay. No. So, and I think it's important to remember that with, I mean, the reason we started the folic acid supplementation is to decrease neural tube defects, and all of those studies were done on folic acid. Yeah, okay. That still should be the main one that we supplement with because that's still the main role of um, uh, reason why we tell patients to take folic acid. Um, and, and from a folic acid cycle point of view, as long as you've got plenty of it, the cycle works well enough that I don't know that it really matters too much overall. Mm -hmm. What about from an absorption rate perspective, though, with folate over folic acid? Would it not be more of a benefit for a patient to take folate? Um, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's a tricky one to work out. And from my point of view, the way we were looking at the folic acid cycle, it's not so much the absorption rate, it's more about how the cycle progresses. Okay. And and the because the, it's a polymorphism, the enzyme still works, it's just not as efficiently. So if you keep producing, giving someone more folic acid, even if it's the one mm. step before, you'll still produce enough because you've got more of it. Okay. But that's not quite the same as absorption, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so I know from about 2014 through to about 2020, MTHFR was spoken about a lot with recurrent miscarriage, but are you still investigating MTHFR when you're looking into recurrent miscarriage? With no, I don't, I don't investigate at all. Yeah. And also yeah. infertility as well? Yeah, I don't test for it at all for that reason. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how I think if we talk about it, over the last 20 years, I think I'm... <laughs> Like test numbers have decreased and decreased to yeah. at this point. The number of tests I do for recurrent miscarriages is actually quite small compared to the list that we used to have. Um, um, because a lot of the evidence is not there that mm. is the cause of recurrent miscarriages. I mean, I don't even do thrombophilia screens apart from antiphospholipid syndrome. That's probably the only one that's still um, thought to have a, a be a cause of recurrent miscarriages, but a lot yeah. of the other thrombophilia screen also. It causes complications and they're a real problem, but not first trimester miscarriages. So yeah. my call is in pregnancy, but that's different to the first trimester. Mm. So I don't necessarily even test for those in the first trimester, whereas 10 years ago I would have 100 percent Yeah, okay. To, you know, 10 conditions where I don't anymore. Yeah. yeah. So um when would you recommend a couple to seek out further investigation? I think if someone's worried, I would always test I think you know definitely I mean I don't tell people to wait I mean most people don't even come and see you after one miscarriage but after two that's you know definitely we would um, be investigating just to make sure we've ruled things out it's more about for reassurance than anything else mm -hmm. um, I mean I think like I said we might not do that many tests but if we've ruled out major factors and we think look this is probably just a random event I mean, it's going to be hard every time you have a miscarriage going into the next pregnancy is always going to be traumatic. So at least if we've ruled out what we can, people are much happier to kind of keep going and trying naturally again. Um, so, I mean, the tests we do, there's not that many now. I think I do a karyotype still. Um, I mean, the risk of having a chromosomal problem within the parents is still quite low. Mm. But if there is one, at least they know that that was the reason. Um or could be a contributing reason. I mean, I do do thyroid function tests. Even pelvic ultrasounds, I do do it for structural abnormalities. But even 
things like a septum now there's recent studies to suggest that resecting a septum may not be a problem either and in terms of improving the chance of um, ongoing pregnancies in the future so things always change with recent research so um i still would do an ultrasound but how we would act upon it might be different to what i did five years ago um interesting antifossil liver syndrome i definitely still do so yeah the tests there's not as many as i would have done in the past and there are a lot of things that i think are still experimental that i wouldn't do even after two miscarriages um i think they've still got a good chance of an ongoing pregnancy um, if someone does have a miscarriage and they send the products for testing, again, it doesn't necessarily change what go happens going forward, but if those products show that there was a chromosomal problem, it gives them a reason. And mm -hmm. that, I think, can still be helpful from a, you know, moving forward sort of point of view that, look, that pregnancy was not meant to be. That was the reason it didn't go on. It was nothing to do with any other cause. Mm -hmm. You know, got a chromosomal problem. The outcome happened that should have happened. Um, and I think that still can be very helpful uh, from a grieving point of view as well. Yeah. And so for our listeners who have experienced recurrent miscarriage, mm -hmm. are these kinds of tests able to be done through all fertility specialists? Yeah. I mean, even the GP, a lot of them will do it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. GPs that are interested, fertility specialists. Yeah. And look, depending on who you see, I mean, this is my opinion, <laughs> you might get a different version of what tests will be done. And as, as you all know, um, we all look at the literature and, I guess, interpret it differently and you will not get the same opinion or, you know, and I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but it's just, mm -hmm. yeah, you'll definitely get a, probably a different list from seeing different doctors as well. Yeah. yeah. And what support networks can a couple reach out to for further, further support when experiencing recurrent miscarriage? Yeah, I think it's, it's it's really tough. I think there are definitely support groups out there, um, like Pink Elephant, Sam, Sam's Gidget. Um, sometimes seeing your own psychologist if you have one or counsellor or getting in touch with one just to help you with the grief and knowing, not knowing, but just helping you know how to move forward because each time you've had a, a miscarriage, the next pregnancy is going to be just so much harder for you. Um, and I don't think you can change that, but it's just how people can assist you, maybe helping you process it and, and move forward, um, have friends that listen and be family that does the same, not judge you and, and tell you what to do, but it has a, has a listen and are supportive. Um, so there's probably, again, depends on the person, um, just to know what's out there and, and what will be helpful to them. But there are definitely probably more support groups available now than, than there were in the past, definitely. There's a lot more awareness now. Yeah, definitely. I think people talk about it more, um, whereas before it was almost you had a miscarriage and you told no one, Whereas, um, which is hard. It's like you didn't do anything wrong. And I think sometimes if we're all open about what's going on and it's talked about and you realise, gee, as soon as someone mentions, oh, yeah, and this person had one and then this person had a miscarriage, it doesn't make it any easier, but you know it's common. And, You've got support. And it's definitely much more supportive if you find people that um, have been through the same traumas you had to help you through it. Most yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then Helen, to finish off today, what is your one piece of advice for women and or couples on their fertility journey? Yeah, I think it's a tricky one. I think we never know how it's going to go. And I think that's the hardest part for everyone. I mean, I find it really hard. It's really hard when I consult with patients because I can't predict which patient I will barely see because they've come and gone so quickly and achieved a pregnancy. And 
who sadly will be with us for a while because it's just not that easy. Um, and it, it, it's that balance between always being hopeful because otherwise, why are you going through this journey and treatment? Um, finding, as I guess the same with the miscarriages, finding the right toolkits and and what can be helpful to get you through the journey when we don't know what it's, what's going to happen from one step to the next step. Um, so whether that is having other um, uh, specialists and integrative um, practitioners on board, um, counsellors, um, and just tools that you may need as you go along. Because um, sometimes that hole can get dug pretty quickly and it's really hard to get out of it when things do start to get wrong um, or, or, go, or, go, or go wrong, should I say. Um, so it can be really, really tricky. Um, so I think hopeful but being prepared for the unknown as much as you can be, because I think that one's going to be prepared for some of the difficult things that they may face in life. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Helen, for coming on the podcast. It's been so okay. great with you. You're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. <laughs> well, lovely having a chat to you both. And hopefully, yeah, it's gone down well. Yeah. All right. Beautiful. Sure. Thanks, Helen. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode, please don't forget to like, subscribe, and review. Catch you next time. This podcast is intended as generalised health information only and was relevant at the time of recording. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or as a substitute for treatment from a medically trained practitioner. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions.